Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The Irish Times Business Podcast in association with Irish Life. We're here to support your company and your employees. Now and in the future, we know Irish life. We are Irish life. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Business Podcast. This is Wednesday, December 30th. I'm Kieran Hancock. And I'm Arthur Beasley. On this week's show, we'll be looking towards 2016. What can we expect from the economy? What trends should we be looking for in tourism and travel? And how might the new year affect our insurance premiums? Joining us in the studio are Danny McCoy, Head of Employers Group IBEC, Fiona Muldoon, Chief Executive of Insurer FBD, and Pat Byrne, Executive Chairman of Irish Airline CityJet. And we're going to start with Danny. Danny, it's been a big year and another big year beckons. We've had economic growth at close to 7% this year. Another big advance forecast for 2016. What's going on in real time and business out there on the street? Well, Arthur, as you said, it's been a, a, a bursting uh, economy. It might be the best description of it. Um, it's not just a 7% volume growth that we look like we'd had in 15, but in, in money terms, it's probably grown by about 11%. So all those debt-to-GDP ratios are coming tumbling down, which I think is indicative that the austerity phase is way over now. So we're looking for ambition into 16. It's very broadly based across business. I think that nearly every sector is now seeing that growth. It was obviously export-led to start with, but we're going to see a real rebalancing to domestic demand. That's already evident in the construction industry. We're seeing very uh, significant construction build going on now, mainly in commercial, not for the the property market as yet, so there's still more to come there. We're also seeing it in, in car sales, particularly commercial vehicles. It's nowhere near the Celtic Tiger Heights yet, so there's still huge growth rates to come in the motor vehicles. Um, and that obviously is, is having lots of pressure in infrastructure as well, which we might talk about later on. But right across the business community, very strong, very strong recovery. But if it's across most or all business sectors, which sectors are lagging? Which are the sectors which have yet to see a real big uplift? I think retail is one that's actually seen the most lag because it's been caught in the grip of uh, no price recovery now. And price recovery is everywhere else. Every other sector is seeing price recovery. Um, so the retailers have been involved in a in a war, uh, a war in terms of technology and what's happening on internet shopping and, and how... That, that manifests itself, but also particularly in the grocery market, the arrival of the 
uh, retailers, discounters in the retailers has actually changed that landscape. So they're definitely lagging behind, but I think that that's now beginning to break as well. And we'll see price recovery coming through in retail as well, I'm sure. So this has been good for the consumer, but what you're saying is that ultimately it's going to turn and it will be better for the trader. It has to be because of all the sectors that have lagged, the question you asked me, by far the ones that stand out are those that are in the high street retail space. Now, as we look to 2016, there is a major event on the, ha- on the horizon. It's quite imminent now. I'm talking of the general election. What, to your mind, are the salient issues for the business community as we look ahead to the poll, which is going to be called pretty early in the new year? Yeah, I think, um, as I said at the start there, austerity is definitely over. I know a lot will want to keep looking back. But actually, it's the ambition now. And in fact, you know, if we wanted to have an inquiry as to why people haven't seen the recovery, um, because that's leaving us a lot of uh, gaps now when we could be kicking on in terms of public infrastructure. So I think a government with ambition has to be the, the main motif that the business community is looking for. And that involves around issues uh, like public infrastructure, because that's where the main pinch points are going to come from. Business will sort itself out, but in terms of issues like housing, transportation or health education sectors. This is where we need to see government showing that kind of ambition. And what about the whole question of the public finances and the quite the aspect of certainty we've had over policy in recent times, which has brought the economy now into a phase of growth? Absolutely. I think the economy is in a very sustainable phase now, but I think it's going to be uh, unstable. I think the public finances are going to see a lot of seesaw uh, going on the next couple of years, mainly got to do with corporate taxation. Uh, We're seeing a real surge into Ireland uh, this year, 15, and now into 16. That will be quite an unstable base. Um, It it is sustainable, but, you know, it's going to be very hard to predict the profitability of companies and so on. And also, you know, we may come back to it as well, probably bigger than the general election here, in my view, is what happens in Britain in 2016 with their referendum. Well, that is certainly there. It's there in the background, and we'll come come back to that later. Pat, I might just pick up on the point about the general election, the forthcoming general election, because uh, the present government, they've been pretty good from a tourism and travel point of view, haven't they? I mean, they introduced a special 9.9% VAT rate, and they they axed the exit tax uh, at airports and so forth. So uh, what are your hopes in terms of the new government and what it might deliver for the travel trade? Um, I think the, the most thing, the thing we want most of all is stability. Uh, and the biggest fear I probably have with the election coming up is that I certainly don't think the uh, existing coalition will get back in again in, in current form. Um, so we're certainly going to have, um, you know, we're not going to have a single party government. Uh, we're certainly going to have probably uh, a lot more compromise in policies the, than we've seen uh, over the last number of years. And that, that is the threat to actually stability and clear direction. Um, the current Minister for Transport, Pascal Donoghue, I think is very enlightened. He's published a very good uh, aviation uh, policy paper. Um, I think that that's all very positive. Uh, I'd like to see uh, the second runway in Dublin get started, but uh, that still looks like it's a bit away and the construction time can be anything up to three years. So echoing what Danny is saying, I, th- I would like to see the government commit to that infrastructure. We need it now. Uh, and we really need it like yesterday because the congestion at Dublin is now going to become quite large. Just on that point, I mean, Dublin Airport is kind of creeping up towards uh, the peak levels of the of the boom years and, and might be there, I don't know, in the next couple of years, let's say. Should we be looking now, uh, should we be starting to think now about a, a third terminal at Dublin Airport? Because these I, things take several years to put in place. Yeah, I'm not so sure that 
terminal capacity is the issue. I think terminal capacity is okay. The problem is that the terminals are side by side and everything is, is, is funneled into the same uh, side of the airport. That creates pressure on ramp space. And if you have runway congestion, uh, then you have people literally, are, aircraft that actually can't get in on stand, aircraft can't get out on stand because there are aircraft behind them and so on. So it, it just delays the entire passenger experience. So it's not a terminal issue. It's actually a runway issue. Mm. That's where the capacity is That needed. begs the question as to how we're going to pay for it. It's an expensive piece of infrastructure. It is, but, uh, you know, speaking as an airline, uh, certainly... Um, Charges are not low, <laughs> levied on airlines, and in turn we have to pass those on to passengers. So uh, airport infrastructure in an airport like Dublin Airport will handsomely repay itself over and over again. Of course, also the side effects and the benefits to the economy are absolutely enormous. And I think with the IAG uh, takeover of Aer Lingus, uh, you know, what's going on there is that really, uh, you know, Willie Walsh is using Dublin as almost Terminal 6 at Heathrow. That's what he wants to do. I think that's a good thing for the country. That's going to mean an awful lot more transatlantic traffic, but it means an awful lot more feeder traffic coming into Dublin as a hub. So Dublin was never originally constructed as a hub. Now it has to actually become a hub, and that requires a different geography, a different landscape, and it absolutely requires a parallel runway. What about CityJet for next year? What, what are your hopes? I mean, the company's been through quite a bit of restructuring in the past year, 18 months. Yeah, we've gone through a massive amount of restructuring. Uh, we, we've, we've got a number of things uh, going. We, we, we won a major contract with SAS uh, this year, which we start in March. So we're operating a very extensive network from March in Scandinavia across three countries. Um, we're operating a fleet of eight aircraft with an option on an additional six. Um, we uh, and that, that means we're taking delivery of uh, eight new Bombardier CRJ900 jets, the airframes of which are being built in Belfast, which is interesting that the aircraft get finished in, in, in uh, Montreal. Um, we also are taking delivery of uh, three Sukhoi superjets, uh, the first of the first three out of fifteen. Uh, to replace, uh, start replacing our Avro or J85s. So we see, uh, for us next year, uh, a consolidation on what we're doing at London City. We operate eight routes out of London City Airport. That's very important to us. We operate five aircraft for Air France out of Charles de Gaulle. We'll be operating eight aircraft up in Scandinavia for SAS. And we will be developing our charter business, which is growing very nicely as well. And we will be tasking the, the, the Sukhois on the charter business in June of this year. Next year. Obviously, oil is at an 11-year low, um, and that's going to be good for your business. It is, and uh, it's forcing airlines to look at their hedging policies again. Um, and, Do you uh, hedge? We're not hedged at the moment. When we were part of Air France, we were hedged. Uh, and then when we, when we came out of the Air France group, we were on our own. Uh, but we are looking at seriously looking at locking in again now, because... Uh, how low can oil go? Um, you know, we'd like it to stay where it is forever, but that's that's not going to happen. <clears throat> so we will hedge coming into 2016, yeah. Okay. Fiona, what about insurance for next year? I think a lot of consumers were pretty shocked when they opened their motor insurance renewals this year to discover steep double-digit increases being proposed by their insurance companies and lots of different factors playing into that. You can talk to, talk to us about them. What should we expect in 2016? And I'm also curious as to the recent storm damage, what impact that's had on FBD's business. Okay, well, I think if we could start a little bit with, if we trace back uh, some of the things that we've talked about in terms of the economic recovery 
insurance, broadly speaking, will be counter-cyclical to that. So when you see an uptick in the economy, there's more people back on the roads, there's more people in hotels and restaurants, there's more people back at work. All of those things lead to uh, an increase in frequency of claims. And we saw that broadly through 2014 and we saw it continue into 2015. That feeds directly into price increases. Along with that, we had a lot of upheaval in the court system and we have a a reasonably generous court awards system in this country. For instance, in the UK, you will have seen um, the introduction of a proposal by the UK government to uh, stop paying lump sum payments in respect of soft tissue damage like um, neck injury. And now it is only the care and the remedial uh, uh, um, treatments through physiotherapy etc under this proposal that would be paid for and that is into a system where in the UK the court awards were a fraction of the awards made in Ireland so typically soft t- tissue injury for uh, a whiplash would pay £4,000 typically the average payment in Ireland is between 15 and 20 that is why consumers pay more for their policies in Ireland than they would maybe comparatively in Germany or UK or anywhere else. So that continues to be at play. Both severity and frequency in insurance terms are up. We have seen that stabilise in frequency terms in FPD, but we have yet to see a stability in the severity space. So injury awards continue to rise. And unfortunately, that means one thing and one thing only at the end of the chain, the consumer pays more. So Let's just talk about 2015. What was the average uh, rate increase uh, at FPD in premiums? Uh, uh, Let's uh, take motor. Again, okay, because you do need to do that. Across our entire book, we would have seen 9%, but that's hiding a multitude. The bulk of FPD's book is in the farming and small business space, but in the consumer space, it would have uh, the increases in motor terms over 12 months would be uh, high. Uh, so it would be high teens, early 20s, average on the right. motor Late, book. late teens, early 20s. Sorry, okay. yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, let's say in house insurance, what would it Much, much lower. House insurance, broadly speaking, has been uh, profitable. And that comes to the second part of your question. How has FBD done in the recent floods? The reality there is is that after 2009, uh, insurance companies, uh, taken as a generality, got much better around areas to exclude uh, lying in uh, floodplains and whatnot. So we saw, uh, we've seen... um, Obviously, a lot of notices arising from the storm, but 80% of our notices are storm notices. So they're wind damage notices. Only 20% of our uh, claims so far are in floods. So the exclusions that operate in terms of people's houses being lying in floodplains, they have worked, broadly speaking, well for us. But that means that you have a broad swathe of the population unable to obtain insurance because their houses are lying in. Mm. How big How big a swathe, do you think? In, in number terms, mm. uh, I think as a totality of the population, it's relatively small. But if you're living in one of those areas, there might be a high proportion in that area unable to get insurance. And looking towards 2016, what can we expect on the motor side? A continued increase, I think almost certainly Double until... 
Um, early teens, I think. So we would see kind of 10, 12% in our book, yes, continuing. And that is, you have to factor in that along with the uptick in frequency and more people on the roads, insurance companies make their money off float. They get the money up front and investment income has been part of the return. And in a low interest rate environment, that is not there uh, very modest returns on the investment portfolio. So what you're really looking at is you must have disciplined underwriting and you must underwrite to a profit. I think that will change the behaviour and the pricing. Danny, when, when we look at that kind of pricing pressure and you know a double-digit increases in two successive years, the likes of motor insurance, that ties in, it seems to me, with a, a trend in which we're seeing kind of increasing competitiveness pressures. We're coming out of a crisis in which there was a general compression in terms of costs, which is pretty good for people who survived in business, but we do have these pressures and it's not confined to insurance. Does that have potential to constrain recovery as it takes hold? It certainly does. It's hard to see it when you've got the really large growth rates that we talked about, but they're flattered by a couple of years of uh, subdued activity, you know, beginning to occur at once. And I, I talked about the big ticket items earlier on sure. in cars, etc. You're dead right. We are starting to lose competitiveness now because we ended up being superly competitive during the crisis. So it was always natural we were going to see wage increases. We we're going to see some price pressures coming back. The real wisdom of Solomon here is when is it starting to get too dangerous? When are we being to see that uh, pay goes out of line with productivity? And the fact that the labour market is tightening again in very many areas where we begin to see wage pressures which would be way above productivity justified norms. So there's difficulty then in, in creating the expectations around what is a kind of a normal uh, run rate and wage expectations. The the one that's out there most, I suppose, is a 2% uh, wage increase. But if you look at the minimum wage, that was pushed up, you know, closer to 6%. So a lot of the administered prices, uh, that is government controlled, are beginning to show growth rates, which may be a function of the electoral cycle, uh, but they're certainly putting in the seeds of competitive loss. And particularly against, you know, countries that we're competing against our main competitor by by a long shot now in the last five years is the United Kingdom. And again, they're pushing up their minimum wage with the living wage. Um, that's not a particular concern. For Northern Ireland, it's a huge concern. But, the you know, we're also seeing that, uh, as Fiona said there, in a lot of kind of the legal administrative costs, Ireland is still way out of line. Uh, by how much? I was going to ask you, I mean, yes, there's, there's pressure here at the level of insurance premium. Where else are we seeing the pressures? Well, we, we see the pressures in, in um, that the actual wage levels, uh, when you go outside of London, for instance, the wage levels and the kind of rates, the local authority rates and so on, would be much more competitive, much more lower, partly as a result of a larger population base to start with as well. So we do have quite a significant amount of levels of cost pressures to start with. And if our growth rates are likely to be higher than theirs in the next coming years, we'll start to see that as a loss of competitiveness. So we won't get the type of investment run rate that we've got over the last five years because of our super competitiveness. But if, if I'm right, the figures do show uh, in the current year, or in 2015, as it finishes, an increase in business, business investment. That's right. But uh, some of that is masked, though, from fairly unique events some of those unique events got to do with the corporation tax, um, this base erosion profit shifting, the work from the OECD G20. We're seeing a huge trend now, and we're really significant in 16, where a lot of companies are bringing a lot of substance into Ireland, possibly to, max, you know, to maximise on the tax strategies that they've had in place previously, 
and we're going to see a huge amount of investment coming through, which doesn't get determined by the kind of cost-competitive pressures that we were talking about in the last few minutes. Pat, are you seeing these kind of competitive pressures? We've already been through how you're a beneficiary of low oil, but are there pressures elsewhere on your cost base? There are, and, 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 and wage increases are, are an inevitable uh, pressure, and we see it with um, other airlines or airlines that are bigger than us. So, so we're going through a cycle where <clears throat> you know, we have to compete with larger airlines uh, for, for crew in particular. Uh, this happens all of the time when you, when you have a recovery. Um, and I really would like, you know, government policy, I would like to think that governments should shoulder a lot of this responsibility by easing the tax pressure. I think there has to be a balance here. It has to be a little bit of a blend. Yes, there will be salary increases, but I think that we have to keep those at moderate levels. And I think that if there's a, a relief on the, on the tax, I think that's going to actually be better overall because we must retain our competitiveness. You know, we try to go out and win uh, contracts with other airlines on, on what we call a wet lease. Uh, we do so because we have a competitive cost base. If, if, if wages run amok, we will not have a competitive cost base. Uh, and therefore, we won't win those contracts. So it's very important, and not just in our industry. I think it's across the board. There's also a sense that people are feeling that they want to be paid back for the sacrifice they've made over the last six or seven years. And a lot of people set, tend to think that they were the only people who were actually uh, put through that, that particular ringer, uh, and they weren't. Everybody had to go through it, but it's, an, it's human nature. People think, I have to be paid back. The company's doing better. And I think that's, that's going to create a huge surge, and I think there will be an explosion in wage demand. So I do think the government has to lead the, the agenda here and say we are going to move in early with, 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 a, with a beneficial tax treatment. Take so the do pressure you, do, off do you reckon increases. that the government got it right in the budget? Because there has been criticism from economists who say, look, at the Irish economy is growing at such a rate right now that it doesn't really need the stimulus provided by a tax cut. But the government would say, look, at you know, we're operating in political real time here. There's, there is an election on the way. And, you know, at the end of the day, these are not massive tax cuts. It's a pity that the election is, was so near because I think that a lot of people will say it was, you know, it's buying votes. But I do think that they actually have to loosen the tax belt. They must loosen it. And even I would say they need to be even more aggressive with it. Danny McCoy? Yeah, I think um, Pat's right. The, you know, the government has a role to play here. But unfortunately, at the moment, any tax cuts are divorced from what happens at the workplace. There's a disconnect between that overall package. Um, there is another way, though. Um, in dealing with the economist critique is that people can get their tax cuts, they can get that back, but it, it should be through the form of that much, you know, back in the dim and distant past, the SSIA type approach. We need to have infrastructure. We're constrained by international rules. There's lots of personal private savings out there to trap that into an investment into our infrastructure, giving people tax cuts so it takes demand out of the immediacy, but gives people back more in their pockets, makes them wealthier, and they can see a flow of funds coming in the future. So I think there needs to be creativity here, but we don't have that. The government has actually been sadly lacking in bringing around that the labour market has many elements to it, and it's just let it be a free-for-all. And during a downturn, that's fine. Private enterprise gets on about its business. But now, in the upturn, you're going to see a lot of that visiting into the workplace, pressures that the government should be trying to do some kind of compact. Fiona, what about the internal pressures within FPD? You talked about the external costs that you can't influence, like court awards and so forth. But what about the internal cost base that FPD has? Um, I mean, you're loss-making at the minute and you're going through a restructuring where, sadly, some people are going to leave the company. Um, so how have you been able to manage that? Are, are there pay increases being put through at FPD at the minute, for example? 
Well, we will, I think, have the same uh, wage inflation pressures as uh, others have discussed here. And I would be firmly of the view that if we go through the exercise of um, almost 10% of the workforce exiting, that uh, those that remain are part of the future and need to feel uh, that they have a future. So we will put through some modest uh, wage increases in the, uh, in the order that Danny discussed earlier. I, we, we're currently uh, thinking about one and a half, two percent and we will try obviously and target that based on merit and, and, and the normal process but um, I think the other thing I would add to the conversation about the tax uh, situation is, is that I do think there is some sense that people needed to feel the end of it was in sight and that, that confidence is very much part of any economy and, and I think that it is wonderful to see that confidence is returning to the Irish consumer and to the Irish High Street and I think uh, long may that continue most of our uh, customer base is rural Ireland I think Dublin has led the way I think rural Ireland still has a ways to go and I think that market towns throughout the country smaller towns are only finding their feet and, and I would be very hopeful that 2016 will continue to see that uh, built upon in the, in the towns up and down the country and not just confined to the large At Irish Life, we can tell you that 49% of employees in Ireland don't think about tomorrow. They don't have a pension plan. We can help you help them. Because if you're involved in running your company's pension plan, we can administer it for you. With our member-specific investment solutions, online access for employers, trustees and members, and always on smartphone apps. Just call one of our corporate team on 01704-1845. Visit irishlifecorporatebusiness.ie or contact your pension consultant to find out how we can help your company think of tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information source for Irish Life September 2014. Pat, there's the possibility of a Brexit referendum in Britain in 2016. It could be the following year, but it could be it could be next year. Um, so, if we're going to have a referendum, there's the possibility that Britain could exit um, the EU. Are you concerned about that, given that you have uh, business on both sides of the Irish Sea? Yeah, I'm very concerned um, because we're, we're entering into really un- uncharted territory here. Nobody really knows what would actually happen if if, if, if Britain actually decided to, to, to leave. Um, our biggest trading partner. It's unconscionable to my mind that if Britain went out, that we would remain unscathed. We would not remain unscathed. We, 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 you know, I think we, we, we would be in, a, in an appallingly difficult and challenged situation. And it is very difficult to know what the right course of action uh, actually would be for this country. But I think that it is a mega serious issue. I don't think that it's, it's getting enough consideration uh, in Ireland at all. It's almost as if it's, uh, you know, uh, they're not really serious or it could go the same way as the Scottish referendum. The Scottish referendum was tight enough. And if they Much had another one... than anyone predicted. And, you know, if, 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 votes. And, and, and usually what happens with these things is that we end up, as we all know, at referenda. It ends up being a best of three. Uh, and we keep going till we get the result that we want. Um, so I, I, I think that it is an enormously serious issue. I think that there needs to be contingency planning uh, started. Right well, I was now. going to ask you about that. Uh, have you done any contingency planning at CityJet? Uh, we have done so much, a bit like Fiona, but we have had to do so much restructuring <laughs> with the business and, 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 and plot our own future that we've been absolutely uh, flat out for the last 10, 11 months. However, 
uh, we need to do contingency planning and we will do contingency planning and start start to think about this in the first quarter next year because we have to because it, it's going to have a massive impact on our business it'll have an impact on everybody in Ireland Danny what potential impact could Brexit have on Ireland well, as Pat says it's, it's actually unknowable but what we do know is that Britain is a very strong competitor already and uh, as, as Pat was saying it's not just the point of them leaving let's, let's say there's a scenario where they stay there's a potential that they'll get a deal here through a protocol that will give them the edge competitively against Ireland. We're not even talking about that. And that's going to occur in the negotiations between now and the referendum. So I think uh, Pat's right. We're, we're incredibly lacking at a governmental level on what is Ireland's best interest even in the negotiations towards the referendum, what we know is happening. You're on the record with a major German newspaper that uh, Ireland might find itself following Britain out of the EU if Britain votes for a Brexit. Do you still hold that view? Absolutely, because if uh, the alternative is there are no conditions in which we would have that conversation. Pat's right. Britain is not only our major uh, partner here, it's also going to be the largest economy in Europe. And so if they were to go, the consequences for Europe will be very significant. And the question will be, will we want to remain in that group or will we want to go in the group which has got more flexibility? And Britain will have flexibility if they're out. They will not be subject to state aid rules. And so already today, we're finding a lot of medium-sized Irish businesses are being encouraged to set up in Britain, which is fair enough. That's the kind of game we've played before. This will become much more attractive. My concern is about our own indigenous multinational companies being attracted to Britain as a global base in that scenario. That was my point to Frankfurt Allgemeine at the time. I still hold that view, and I think it's unconscionable for people to just whistle past the graveyard without saying all of these things are possible. What was the response in the community of business people in which you traverse daily to, the, oh, to this intervention? Absolutely positive, because it's scenario planning. It is exactly that. And in fact, around the referendums uh, that we had here, we had a full backing from business because the question was trivial in most contexts. If we had a question about the euro itself... That has the capacity to split the business community, not about European membership, even about the currency. And we saw that when we were going in the end of the 1990s. And anyone that doesn't think that something as dramatic as Britain leaving the European Union will not lead to a debate here in Ireland, I think, is is just whistling past the graveyard. Uh, Fiona, to use uh, an, an expression common in, in the world of insurance, where Britain to leave uh, the EU, it would not be an act of God. Uh, it would be an act of a, a, a political act and, a, and an act of an electorate. To what extent has your business internalised this prospect and its potential implications for you? It's a very good question because uh, um, rather uniquely, FBD is an independent Irish insurer. It only trades in Ireland. So there, we have a lot of competitors. They're all um, subsidiaries of major international uh, PNC groups. But uh, a 70-80% of our business is, is either farming or agribusiness related and the impact on that sector I think of Brexit would be uh, very profound. So we uh, try to think that through it's, it's not immediately obvious I think um, we'd be very attuned to uh, um, the downturn in the, our customers fortunes that might fall from a uh, uh, or fall out from a Brexit, but it would be a second-order effect, I believe, for the for FPD itself. It would be the impact on our customers and the downturn in their businesses. 
as the the chief of a business which hopes to to plan its way and which hopes to kind of to be seized of everything that's going on in in its landscape what do you make of the the uh, the fact that this particular referendum was was called by the british government the fact that it's now going to happen and the fact that it opens up such uncertainty my personal view is that it was called for political reasons around the management of his own uh, his own party and it does fall into the uh, be careful what you wish for um, and, and it will be very uh, interesting to see. It's very we all I think acknowledge how profound the implications are but it is for the UK citizen and the UK voter to decide so it's, it's much more falls into the how is business going to manage through the outcomes of it. I would be hopeful that in the end they Will, uh, they will vote to stay uh, stay put, but they will need to negotiate a deal. I think Danny is right. Pat, on the other side of the Irish Sea, what are business people saying to you about this? It's coming down the tracks now at a rate of knots. I, I think uh, they're they're a little bit infected by our our, our, our sleepwalking here. I, I mean, I'm 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 amazed that uh, people in London that I that you know I'm interacting with all the time are not as concerned as they need to be uh, about this. Because David Cameron is on record now, he's going to push for a referendum in 2016. In other words, in less than 52 weeks. Yes. Which in business terms is nothing. It's scary. Uh, And I I actually think that there's there's, there's quite a lot of misinformation and and no information uh, circulating uh, in in Britain about this. I think it's it's, it's going right over people's heads. I I, I even think that people think that it's only a (laughs) rumour. I don't think they actually believe that it's actually going to happen. And and that scares me, I have to say. Well, in our politics, we could be accused of referendumitis almost. You know, referendums are they're part of the way we do politics. As a referend- there are referendums going on all of the time. These are pretty rare creatures in the British scenario, leaving aside the precedent of the Scottish one. They are indeed. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, we expect, we hope that the debate will hot up, that people will become m- much better informed, the media will, will start to get into gear. Uh, in the UK on this, uh, and uh, let's you know we're going to have a, a very interesting and very lively debate. But uh, I would say people are leaving it very late in the day to get the talking going. Let's switch to tourism now. It's a very big part of our economy, obviously, and uh, we've had a pretty near record year uh, in terms of number of visitors to Ireland this year. Pat, what are you expecting? Um, the, the government and Fault Ireland and Tourism Ireland really putting their shoulders to the wheel in terms of dri- driving visitor numbers um, to Ireland and increasing the tourism spend here. So what are you expecting in 2016? Uh, a bumper year, I think, for, for, for in, inbound traffic. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's not just oil, but obviously the dollar the way it is too so I think that uh, we're going to there's going to be an enormous number of US visitors uh, coming this year um, but I think you know um, we, we, we see it I mean um, we've you know for example uh, we've been known in the past as being a business airline we, we, we changed our image a, a few months ago to say we're an airline you know and since we did that we actually uh, drove our load factors from 58% to 78% across our network and what we're seeing is a lot of Continental people coming on our routes, uh, switching at London City and coming onto our service to Dublin. But but we you know we see uh, how many people would you expect to bring into Ireland next year? It's hard to know how many we're going to bring in. I mean we we'll probably carry one and a half million passengers on our on our own branded services, uh, excluding our wet lease contracts with other airlines. So probably one and a half million. 
Um, probably six, seven hundred thousand of that are steady business travellers going backwards and forwards, so we don't really count them. So the rest is it's it's two way. You know, it, it's it's pretty much two way. It's pretty well balanced. It's probably fifty fifty really. So maybe four hundred, five hundred thousand. Danny, we're in a sweet spot at the minute, aren't we, in terms of the the euro versus the dollar, uh, sure. the low oil prices. Um, I suppose we had a glut of hotels in certain locations uh, that had to cut their prices in the recession. There's good value to be had, uh, I think, from Irish hotels and um, the government's 9.9% VAT rate helps and so on. So we're in a pretty good place in terms of tourism at the minute. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, you know, what are the big drivers of the the flow of what's tourist and what's a migrant actually is something that we're pretty poorly informed on, you know, the stock of the Irish is actually increasing significantly. Our population, you know, we, a lot of people still think it's 3 million here. It's already at 4.6 million, the south 6.5 million on the island. And they're globalised, and so they're travelling quite a lot as well. So, you know, stripping out what was the traditional tourist uh, that Pat talked about would be an interesting one. And the last one, I suppose, as well, which is kind of coming back, I think tourism will have a great year, is just the intra-week migrants that we have, which are attracted particularly to London, and Pat will know this phenomenon, which goes back to one of the kernels of what we need to sort out in 16, is our marginal tax rate. That's going to be one of the very significant, dramatic differences that we've left ourselves exposed to the UK question, because we know that there's uncertainty there, but we also know that even today, we've left a really significant risk factor with our marginal tax rates being out of line with the UK. And we see that trend, Pat can confirm that, week in, week out, the amount of people who are travelling to Britain as a, you know, it's a regional destination. We're now part, we're part of the same labour market, effectively. We don't track that. The SRI missed that in their assessment of the Brexit. That wasn't even counted, which is a really significant flow. Not even in headcount terms, but in terms of the decision makers uh, for the future. So lots going on in tourism, lots going yeah. on in transport. There's a lot of different stories in that transport story, though. Fiona, FPD was in the hotel game until very recently. You've sold your interests uh, now in that area. But um, Michael Noonan in his budget speech um, said that he was going to leave in place the 9.9% VAT rate. But he also mentioned the fact that the justification for it, certainly in Dublin, is becoming less and less because prices really are going up. And you hear a lot of anecdotal evidence of hotels charging very high sums. So is that going to be a feature of 2016 in hotels that, that the room rates are, are, are going to go up and are, might we damage our competitiveness and our attractiveness to overseas visitors in that respect? I think there are price pressures in uh, everywhere in the economy. I think uh, uh, hotels um, are, are just a part of that. And if we are seeing increased uh, passenger numbers in, that is uh, likely to continue to exert upward price press pressure on on. Uh, on rate, I think it is, uh, you know, I, I think your question falls into the space of what I would hope for. And I think the loss of competitiveness that it will bring if we start to erode. I mean, part of the uh, the years of the downturn were about restoring competitiveness. And I think there is a risk, at least, that we will erode that restored competitiveness if we're not careful, both as a business and in government, you know. Um, so I would be hopeful that we won't, but I'm not necessarily sure that I believe that we won't. <laughs> yeah. Is, is that the biggest single internal threat, Fiona? I think so. I think so. And I, I, I think that our effective tax rates 
are probably too high, but I think that's a difficult and problematic political dialogue. And I'm not sure we always show the appetite to confront those sorts of issues. But our effective tax rate is is really very high indeed. And uh, that will put wage pressure on businesses in the if the tax rate, one of the two will have to give. Um, we're going into an election campaign. Um, what would you most like to hear from people campaigning? Honesty. Honesty as regards <laughs> what? You know? Anything at all. <laughs> just, just a broad-based honesty. I mean, the the uh, election promises thing leaves me cold. That's just a personal viewpoint. I'd, I'd rather see a real dialogue around if we are going to pay for things in health or education or infrastructure, how we're going to pay for them and the trade-offs that we're going to make in order to do that. And on the tax side, a real dialogue around what we can afford. You know, the idea that we will just magic away the USC when it brings in four billion and odd and, and not have to substitute something else in its place. It's, that, it's the stuff of fantasy economics as far as I'm concerned so I would like to see a straightforwardness and an honesty in the conversation once again I wouldn't be that hopeful that I will but sure I can always I can always hope so we've had one plea for honesty. <laughs> Danny, what is the one thing you're hoping for from the election campaign? Uh, ambition, as I said at the start. I mean, to, you know, to say where we're at, which is actually now a very good place. The notion that this is a heavily debt-burdened country is not true. And that's, you know, one of the things is out there. We're heavily indebted. We're not. Well, it's 203 billion. It's not Danny. in net terms. It's not in net terms because this is the one-armed bandit. Anybody in business looks at both sides of a balance sheet. And so in terms of net asset position, Ireland is very strong. Why do the international markets want to lend us money at the rates they're lending us if they think we're a bad bet? So we need to have... Well, there's the element of the ECB, isn't there? No, no. Ireland's a much better bet with a, with a potential growth rate that's much higher than the uh, European uh, system itself. So, you know, we've got to get with, our, with the narrative that's true about Ireland. And so that's where the ambition comes true. Too much of the election will be fought looking back into the austerity uh, piece. Uh, what I want from the election is to be forward-facing with an ambition. Okay, Pat, we've had a plea for honesty. We've had a plea for ambition. What are you looking for? Yeah, in one word. Implementation. Uh, I, I want people to stand in front of me and, and convince me on my doorstep that they actually mean business about implementation. I, I, I think I'll grow old waiting for that to happen. But uh, the, the single biggest thing we lack in this country is implementation. If we look at the health service, it's implementation. If we look at anything, it's implementation. Look at all of the false promises that were made. Nothing was ever implemented. So I want people to stand up and say, we're not going to flood you with policies. We're not going to make you all kinds of false promises. We are going to talk about implementation. We will be people of action. And that's what I'd like to see. I don't expect to see it because I don't think the integrity is there uh, across, the, across the political spectrum. Danny, you talked about um, the two sides of the balance sheet. And on one side, uh, I suppose the government has uh, stakeholding in, in banks, including AIB. And there's talk of a, an IPO next year selling 25% of that uh, institution, which hopefully might net us €3 billion Euro plus. Uh, what, do you, what do you think are the chances of that getting away successfully? And what's the investor appetite for the likes of AIB? I think very strong, actually. And that, that kind of exists in anything, because banking is a utility. Um, and particularly the way AIB is setting itself up is to be a 
a kind of a utility bank, and so you know, and it's not, a pure play in the Irish economy. So it's a pure correlation with the Irish economy, and I think that also extends to other type of utilities like air and so on. Would be in the similar, you know, I'd expect that they'll be back for an IPO as well in in the near future because, the, you know, it goes back to. The, you know, nervous to even say the word because of the derision it is, but it's still the case. The fundamentals of an economy here are really strong. When we talk about all the elements that we say about the education, the globalization, the the uh, age of the uh, workforce, and the fact that it's expanding, the scale of the population is increasing. These all give a three to four percent potential growth rate, which can be you know delivered upon by very wealthy people. They're the people who will be AIB customers or Air customers around the utility. So I think. Very hopeful that we'll see uh, the banks back in private ownership actually much shorter than people are currently predicting. Pat, would you buy an Irish bank share at the minute? Do you believe um, that they've mended their ways? No, they haven't mended their ways and they never will. Uh, If I had a New Year's wish, I'd say I'd I'd love to see a new Irish bank, a real bank, a bank that actually uh, invests in, in values, a bank that actually believes in talking to people and treating people like people. And I would be old school. I want to go back to the old branch network. I want to go back to giving autonomy and power of decision-making to the local manager. Uh, And I I believe it is going to come full circle. And let's get away from the dreaded central uh, credit committees and and, and all that kind of nonsense. And I think that really business needs, SME business needs people who understand their business. And people need to be backed for the people that they are. Not for their plans, but for the people that they are. And that has been lost a long time ago in banking. So uh, I would I would write to Santa, or I did write to Santa. He didn't answer me. Uh, so I'll write to him again next year and ask him for a new Irish bank that actually is a bank, because that's Ireland badly needs a real bank. Fiona, in your previous role with the central bank, you were very critical of uh, of Irish banks and their their lack of. Um, the slow pace at which they were dealing with many of their legacy issues, including mortgage arrears. Has anything happened in the interim since you've left uh, your position with the central bank to change your view about all of this? Do you think the banks are in a better place? Do you think they're doing a better job? I think that, uh, I mean, mortgage arrears have come down in in that period of time since then. A lot of the banks have started and gotten on top of their operational issues, which is what you're talking about, where where I spoke out about it. I sit on the board of the Bank of Ireland, of course, and uh, what is uh, across all of the banks is, I think, the two years plus cohort is still... So while operationally and, and all of the earlier years numbers, I think, are broadly speaking all on a trajectory downwards, there is still a significant cohort uh, if you look at the central bank numbers where two years... Uh, uh, plus arrears that that is still sitting there and still not fully dealt with and so I think is this that a can is a combina- just kicking down the road continually I think there is a combination of uh, um, issues at play uh, including that the housing issue and where those people will go I think it has suited us collectively without pointing at whom but it has suited everybody collectively that that has not been dealt with and it needs to be dealt with it's not going away and a solution will have to be found that will sit across both the banking and political spectrums because if people are to lose their homes they have to be 
housed somewhere else and, and all of those issues around how the legacy debt and whether people get to stay or don't get to stay or whether they declare bankrupt to use the insolvency service of Ireland or how in the round all of the issue will be dealt with has still not been confronted. And what sense are you getting in your role as FBD, Chief Executive, uh, and FBD is a listed company of institutional shareholders, what sense are you getting from them as to how they view the Irish financial sector right now? Um, I think uh, FPD shareholders will have had a very difficult year. So I think they well, I mean in, the bro- in broad terms. Yeah. Um, so um, in broad terms, I think the re- ongoing regulation in the sector and the resetting, I think, of ROEs in the face of higher capital levels and increased burden and cost of regulation, I think continue to challenge the entire financial sector. And I don't think that's going away. I think that is a new normal for everybody working in financial services. Do you reckon there's an investor appetite, however, for the notion of a, you know, a big IPO of a pillar bank uh, which which has been a beneficiary of you know huge state investment to secure its survival, but now the next phase is upon us, and really it's up to the I private market would, now. Yeah? I would probably uh, see a longer time horizon than Danny has outlined, but I, I, I'm not close to the particular institution. But I would have thought that's going to take a number of years. And tell me, is there any discussion in the in the undergrowth around this whole question around the residential property market? Because it seems to me that this is a you know an element of this the the recovery story that is a that still festers if you like I mean we're still you know constrained by a huge shortage of supply there are the new central bank rules people would say that's a good idea it's good not to have runaway lending in a scenario where supply is constrained but I mean really you know kind of like the the crisis is behind us the economy is expanding but we still haven't got it together in terms of this housing market is that something that resonates at the level of investors. Yes, I believe it does. I think that is uh, um, that construction has yet to get going. The housing market has yet to return to a normal level of transaction. Credit demand or supply, depending on your perspective, has yet to uh, has yet to flow through the economy. So, in some ways, our recovery up to this point has been uh, credit less recovery. Yeah, so we haven't seen the uh, real return of credit and we haven't I think we have a housing issue that is uh, evident to just about everybody I would have imagined at this stage and and that's going to be a combination of social housing, uh, landlord and and rental sector and uh, purchasing activity. So I think all of that needs to return to a more steady state. On a lighter note, we've got Euro 2016 uh, coming up in, in France and the two Irelands have qualified. Uh, Pat, I'm sure you're, you're making preparations to um, take a lot of those people on city jet aircraft uh, to various points of France for next year. We are. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a windfall for us. Uh, we did very well with the Rugby World Cup. Uh, we, had a, we, had a, we, had a, we had a bumper um, few weeks with, with extra charters. So, yeah, we're really looking forward to it. We know France well, uh, so yeah, we are busy. Uh, the uh, the calls are coming in. Um, Any sense of how many fans you'll be transporting? 
Not yet. Um, we're 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 uh, we're deep in the uh, assessment of it at the minute. We're we're talking to the tour operators, um, and ticket allocation is very is very positive, which is great for the for the matches. That's a uh, a, a major thing. I mean, the, the worry always will be will, will will the fans get enough tickets? But the ticket allocation is very generous, um, so that's good. So uh, we're really looking forward to it. Yeah. Now obviously, I, there's a, a terrorism issue sadly hanging over France uh, at the minute. Is that holding people back? Do you think? I don't think it's holding people back. I think I think it's very difficult to hold uh, Irish fans back from from sporting occasions like this. Um, we've, you know, uh, tried very hard to to qualify. I know. I I I think it would take an awful lot to stop uh, the Irish fans travelling. Obviously, precautions are going to have to be taken. I think that um, I have no doubt that the French authorities are going to be absolutely all over it and, and very on top of the situation. So, I don't think, please God, that is not going to be a factor. Uh, I think that you know this is an occasion that we're going to enjoy. We mightn't we mightn't get out of the group. Uh, we'd be optimistic maybe to say we would, but we're certainly I think it's uh, it's, it's it's a decent group. Uh, the football is going to be very challenging. Uh, hopefully the weather is going to be good, and uh, it's a great occasion. It's great for Ireland, and it's terrific for us. Danny, an event like Euro 2016 obviously means a lot of Irish people are going to travel um, to France to watch the football, which is great in one sense, but it also means a lot of money is going to leave the Irish economy uh, and be spent in France. Is it so are these events a good or a bad thing, do you think, for... Uh, they're definitely a good thing in terms of morale, goes into productivity. You know, you may have some absenteeisms at the workplace, but in, in the overall scheme of things, um, they, they, their positive impact in the country where people are going from is probably much greater than the loss of money to, uh, to the destination um, um, country. I'm just delighted because it's a great, it's a great boost for both parts of the island um, to have what I think might well be a fairly unique event where we're both at the same championship and we might see a lot of the kind of camaraderie that's actually evident in the political and business communities already between the two parts of the island. And going back to the more serious point is that's a big issue as to what happens next in Britain. The, the reunification of this island in terms of business terms, maybe not in political terms, I think is a huge agenda item which we're working with our colleagues in CBI Northern Ireland, particularly around our infrastructural needs to, to connect up this whole island. Fiona, have you booked your tickets for Euro 2016? No, I'll be unlikely to. I'll watch it from TV. Yeah, I wouldn't be the world's biggest soccer expert, Kieran. It's still time to change your mind, Fiona. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so on that note, uh, I think we'll leave it there. That's it from the Irish Times Business Podcast for this year. My thanks to Danny McCoy, Fiona Muldoon and Pat Byrne for coming into the studio. Declan Conlon produced the show with Gary White as sound engineer. Don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. You can also get the latest business news by buying the Irish Times newspaper each day. He's Kieran Hancock. That's Arthur Beasley. Until next year, take care. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. 
It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.